Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Ever heard that poem? It was written by a Christian believer, and we'll use that to get into our study of First John today. But first, I want to tell you that today's podcast is sponsored by MP Seminars, which can train you to use the most advanced study tools available for the Scripture, Logos Bible Software. I use Logos in preparing today's podcast. No pastor or professor can afford to be without the resources that are available now from Logos, but it takes some coaching to learn how to use it effectively. Joshua Rowe and his team at MP Seminars can help you. He can help you get up and running with the only authorized training company of Logos Biblical Software, and you can get more information at mpseminars.com. Somewhere along the way in your school experience when you studied Victorian literature, you probably read Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poems. In recent years, she's been rediscovered by feminists and by political philosophers who have praised her. But we ought to remember she was first and foremost a follower of Jesus and an eager student of the Bible. She read the Bible both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, and she made extensive notes in her own personal Bibles. For example, in one of her notes, in the margin of the book of Psalms, she noted how one particular psalm was describing the yet-to-come Jesus Christ. She was just saturated with Scripture. I wonder if that is why she wrote so beautifully on the concept of love. Her most famous poem described her love for her husband, Robert Browning, with these familiar words, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. She was writing that to her husband, but she was drawing from Ephesians chapter 3, which talks about the depth and breadth and height of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul is called the Apostle of Love. When you read the four Gospels, you'll find that Matthew uses the word love 15 times, Mark seven times, Luke 13 times, but John uses it 39 times, more than the other three put together. And he uses the word another 27 times in this one epistle that we're studying now, 1 John. Well, today we're coming to the apex of this study as we read the passage that begins with chapter 3, verse 11. And if you're sitting with a Bible near you, then you may want to turn there to the book of 1 John, near the end of the Bible, chapter 3, and I'll read verses 11 through 24, and then we'll go through and annotate and dissect them. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. Well, this is one of those passages in which to study it, it's best to go verse by verse inductively, and then at the end we can develop the main point. John begins with verse 11 saying, For this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Here again, John seems to have been hearkening back to the upper room discourse, which is recorded in his gospel in chapters 13 through 17. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples to love one another. He said everyone would know that we are his disciples if we love one another. Now, here in this epistle of 1 John, this is the first of six times when he tells his disciples, John tells his own disciples, to love one another. What does it mean to love one another? Well, John is about to provide several maxims about this. First of all, he says, beginning in verse 12, don't be like Cain, but be like Christ. Verse 12 says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. John went all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis and to the beginning of the human story to remind us of these first two sons of Adam and Eve. Abel was righteous, but Cain was evil. And out of his evil heart came envy, and out of envy came anger, and out of the anger came hatred, and out of the hatred came murder. Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. In other words, whether we love others depends on the overall condition of our heart. A person who is righteous in God's sight is able to love others. Someone who is not righteous in God's sight cannot love. They may be able to express affection. They have emotions that fill to them like love. They may be attracted to somebody, but the person without the righteousness of Christ cannot truly love as Christ does and as Christ commands. 
We'll look at that in a few weeks in another passage that we're coming up to. So he begins by telling us, do not be like Cain, but be like Christ. Secondly, he says here, do not be surprised by evil, but be secure in Christ. This verse says, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Just as Cain hated his brother Abel, so the world, exactly in the same way, is conditioned to hate the followers of Christ today. Jesus pointed this out again and again, warning his disciples to expect hatred and ridicule and castigation and persecution. John told us not to be surprised by this. And Peter said something similar in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you. Well, John tells us not to be surprised, but to be secure. He says in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. We should be secure in the love that is flowing from God through us to others. The fact that we find the existence of divine love inside of us is evidence that we belong to Christ and we have passed from death to life. John goes on to say, anyone who does not love, agape love, the Christ love within him, anyone who doesn't have that remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So don't be surprised. Be secure. And thirdly, don't give a lecture on love. Just lay down your life. He says in verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Isn't it interesting that this is 1 John 3.16? And it's the perfect echo of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And just as Christ laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We all know stories of people who died for someone else. And reading about World War II and Vietnam and other stories from military history, we come across true heroes who fell on grenades or in some of the ways sacrificed their lives to save their compatriots. When the tornadoes hit Middle Tennessee last year, I read about a father in a mobile home who put his son into the bathtub and lay on top of him while their home was destroyed. The father died, but the son lived. Jesus said in John 15:13, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. But John adds an interesting twist here. He says that laying down our lives for someone else doesn't necessarily mean dying for them. It means, typically, living in order to serve them. He goes on in verse 17 to say, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This New Testament emphasis, which was taught in the Gospel of John, and here is explained in the epistle of 1 John, has changed the whole world. In the Greco-Roman world of John's day, almost no one gave anything in the form of charity. There were occasional exceptions to this, but not many, and times were hard. Plato taught that a poor man who was no longer able to work because of sickness should be left to die. Another philosopher taught that when you give supplies to the poor, 
You simply lose what was yours, and you are only prolonging the beggar's misery. The world was unbelievably callous in those days. Their idea of fun was watching people be killed and devoured by wild animals in the Colosseums. If a child was born but not wanted, it was taken out and left to die of exposure. This was especially true of baby girls who were regarded as less desirable than little boys. Torture and crucifixion were commonplace. Historian Alvin Smith wrote, The Greco-Roman culture did not see the hungry, the sick, and the dying as worthy of humane assistance. The worth of a human being was determined by external and accidental circumstances in proportion to the position that he held in the community or state. A human being only had value as a citizen, and very few people qualified as citizens. Non-citizens were defined as having no purpose and hence not worthy of being helped. Well, what Jesus and what John taught was radically different. It was new for their times, but this message took hold and changed the Western world. Justin Brierley, in his book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, wrote, Christianity was the pivot point that turned civilization in a radically new direction from a culture in which many lives were regarded as cheap and expendable towards the valuing of human life. Justin Brierley wrote about Tom Holland, who is an English historian who was fascinated by ancient civilizations even in his childhood. His father was an atheist, and Holland himself disavowed belief in God. His earliest books were about Greece and Rome, but he became disillusioned with what he learned. He said, the more you live in the minds of the Romans, and I think even more the Greeks, the more alien they come to seem. And what becomes most frightening is the quality of the callousness that I think is terrifying because it is completely taken for granted in those days. This is really a terrifying alien world, and the more you look at it, the more you realize that it is built on systematic exploitation in almost every way, said Holland. This is a world that is unspeakably cruel, speaking of the days in which Jesus and John lived. Well, Holland became disillusioned with that, and so he went on to study Islam, and again, he was disillusioned with what he found. He kept asking himself one question. Where did our modern ideas of compassion and human rights and charity come from? And the only answer, he discovered, is that the changing element in Western civilization was Jesus Christ and the early Christian teaching about love. Holland ended up writing an article entitled, Why I Was Wrong About Christianity. He wrote about how it was that the Christian story of Jesus Christ brought compassion, human values, charity, goodness, and selflessness to Western civilization, and he ended his articles by saying, Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two-millennia-old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in a post-Christian society still take it for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value, 
and my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. Tom Holland subsequently wrote a massive book entitled Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Well, this is the power of the agape love that Jesus Christ introduced to the world and infused by his Holy Spirit into his followers like you and me. This is the kind of love that says, how can I help someone? How can I meet the needs of somebody else? This is the kind of love that transforms a marriage. How many romantic movies have we seen in which the man tells a woman, you really make me happy? We've heard this so many times, we don't even think about the implications of such a statement. What the man is really saying is, your job is to make me happy and to meet my needs. But agape love would say, my job is to make you happy and to meet your needs. If we would only think in those terms from 1 John chapter 3 and also in chapter 4, as we'll see, it would transform our marriages, our homes, and so many other things about our relationships. Well, let's go on to verses 19 and 20, and I'll tell you these are very difficult to interpret. There are many ways of translating and looking at these verses, and it can become very complicated. But for our purposes, let's take it at face value as we have it in the New International Version. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. This rendering seems to be saying, when we love others with the agape love of God, we know we belong to him and to his truth, and that fills our hearts with rest and peace. And even if we feel the distress of our failure to love as we should, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows how to help us to do better. Verses 21 through 24 goes on to say, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. And this brings us to our next maxim. Don't depend on yourself. Depend on the Holy Spirit for this love. The unfolding line of thought in this passage seems to be, don't be like Cain, but be like Christ. Don't be surprised by evil, but be secure in Christ. Don't give a lecture on love. Lay down your life. And finally, don't depend on yourself, but depend on the Holy Spirit for the love that He can give you, which is different from anything else that this world knows. Verse 24 says, The one who keeps God's command lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. The Apostle Paul told us in the book of Philippians to work out our salvation as God is working in us. He works in us, and then we work it out. And this matter of love is a prime example. The kind of love John is describing is impossible for human beings. It's only possible for the followers of Christ who are new people because they have been born again of the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ is now imparted within them by that same Holy Spirit. Romans 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love. 
And Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured out. Literally, it gushes into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus loves this world with perfect agape. We have none of it in ourselves, not one drop. But the indwelling Holy Spirit, as he has full access to our hearts, takes the agape love of Jesus and begins to cultivate it inside of us. And we begin to learn how to put the interests and needs of others before our own interests and needs. In a marriage, for example, going back to that, the husband learns that his main job is to meet the needs of his wife and vice versa. At the office, we learn to look at situations more carefully, not just reacting in anger when someone or something doesn't go our way. We look at the other person and try to understand what's happening in their own hearts and minds. Let me give you an example of what I think this looks like. Let's say two 16-year-old fellows were competing for the same spot on the basketball team and only one could be chosen. If both of these boys had the mature agape love of Christ in them, then the one who lost out would understandably be disappointed, but his disappointment would be mitigated by his joy that his companion got the spot and that he himself would learn the vital lesson of trusting God with the disappointment. The one who gained the coveted spot would be disappointed that his schoolmate didn't get it, and his joy would be mitigated by his concern for his friend, though he himself would trust God with his victory. In other words, agape love rejoices when others succeed. Agape love works hard for the welfare and the happiness of the other person. Agape love forgives easily, encourages heartily, and sacrifices often. The Apostle Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 13, as we read in the version called The Message. Love never gives up. Love cares more for, its, for others than for itself. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when the others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps on going to the end. We cannot produce this kind of love in our fallen humanity. It just isn't within us. The Bible says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The world knows nothing about the experience of this kind of agape love, so we can only ask, as we should, the Holy Spirit to cultivate it inside of us. Here's a good prayer that we can end on. This was composed by a hymnist named Kate Wilkerson, but it's one that I sing often because it's a prayer that expresses the need that all of us have as we mature in Christ. May the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day. By his power and love controlling all I do and say, and may the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea, him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. Well, thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me as we've looked at this incredible paragraph in 1 John about love. And remember to check out Logos Bible Software Training at mpseminars.com. 
Today's podcast was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media and sponsored by MP Seminars, which has three decades of experience training pastors in the use of biblical software for study. Audio engineering and production is by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline that is often very helpful, and posts them as blogs on my website, robertjmorgan.com, where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you again for tuning in. Please share this podcast with others, and may God be with you until we meet again.